Welcome to Fast Break, the interview podcast with digital shakers and movers, presented by Arman Farsi. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Fast Break. I had the privilege to talk to Florian Heinemann, who shares his views on digital marketing, the role of branding, and also some personal notes, for example, if he has a mentor himself. Apologies up front for some lower quality audio, despite two test recordings and Project A having an own podcast studio. For inexplicable reasons, Florian's audio is not so perfect. But hey, it's Florian, so the not-so-perfect audio should be clearly outweighed by his very interesting thoughts and perspectives. Enjoy listening, stay tight, spread the word. Welcome to Fast Break. Hey, Florian, I'm very happy, excited to welcome you as the first guest in this new podcast format called Fast Break. And I guess at least in the German-speaking geographies, Florian or Dr. Florian Heinemann probably needs no further introduction, being kind of the, I guess, online marketing, BI, CRM, e-commerce godfather, as he is often referred to. However, let's briefly get to know you for those who haven't had the pleasure yet. Uh, Florian, what did you do so far in your professional career? Give us a quick overview. Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for having me. First of all, as your as your first guest, that's obviously uh, obviously an honor. Uh, and uh, yeah, I started in 1999 as a uh, as a founder. Uh, that was kind of the, the first wave um, uh, for startups, at least in Germany. That kind of started 98, 99. Um, and uh, I was the co-founder of a marketplace for used rare and, and out of print books, which in hindsight actually wasn't wasn't such a stupid idea. I mean, we didn't really know what we were doing, but. Hindsight, it proved to be quite quite good. Um, um, the, the company was called uh, Just Books, and was then merged with another company called uh, ABE Books, which is basically doing the same thing or was doing the same thing in, in, in Canada and the US. And uh, they bought the company that I founded or co-founded, Just Books, and the uh, combined entity was then later on sold to Amazon in, in, in 2006. And that was kind of also the starting career of my business angel activity. Yeah, so since 2000. Six, I started doing angel investments, and um, in 2007, I, I became one of the first managing directors of, of Rocket Internet, um, uh, which was kind of yeah the the second wave uh, in in Berlin after you know 9/11 and after basically the the, the financial crisis in 2001-2002. Uh, 2006, 2007, that was kind of the restart of the Berlin scene and Rocket Internet was obviously a key player there. And I I was um, a managing director there for four, four and a half years, um, doing my business angel stuff on the side and, and doing some quite nice deals. Also things like Trivago, Audibene, and, and obviously the whole Rocket uh, stuff. And, um, and Which was examples such as Zalando, I think. Yeah, was, especially, or... especially Zalando, that was kind of the, the main uh, project. Uh, I spent like three days a week there, and, and, and also a lot of the marketing approach that uh, that we developed uh, basically for Rocket as a whole, and that influenced heavily also, I guess, uh, at least the DAC uh, startup scene was developed basically at, at Zalando, and I was I was a part of that. And then 2012, um, uh, with together with three partners, we founded um, a fund called Project A, uh, also with an operational. 
approach, but uh, strictly VC, so investing in founder-driven and founder-led businesses um, at the Series A and, and, and early stage. But I always try to keep basically my operational angle, uh, and especially in, in marketing, CRM, and BI. Yeah, that's what I'm doing until today. So it has been eight years uh, already. So uh, roughly now uh, one third uh, of my professional life has been as, as an entrepreneur or operator, and, and two thirds by now as as like an operational investor. And yeah. I think there's a quite interesting kind of um, bridge when you were actually going the academia path so to say you did your phd i think it was in accounting controlling how did you then end up in the very let's say different uh startup world how did that yeah yeah that's actually quite funny originally in 1999 i wanted to do a phd in accounting yeah that was like the original plan which is probably the most unentrepreneurial field you could imagine although the professor that i tried to do it with or intended to do it with is actually quite an entrepreneurial guy uh, professor weber but uh, that that stopped when i was uh, doing the, the the first startup i mean it's impossible to do that aside but i used the time between 2003 and in 2006, uh, you know, when the uh, entrepreneurial scene, uh, at least in Germany, was a little uh, uh, slower and, and uh, recovering from the 2001-2002 meltdown, um, I, I was I used that to do a PhD um, uh, at Handelshochschule Leipzig in Aachen. But that was then in, in innovation management and entrepreneurship. So then I came back basically to to that. And I uh, yeah thought about becoming uh, or trying to become a, a, a professor, uh, but that stopped uh, when when Rocket kind of emerged. And uh, first it was an experiment, but then uh, you know it turned out to be quite a successful experiment and, and also a very time-consuming experience. And, and so then uh, you know my academic uh, plans uh, were, were stopped harshly. But uh, um, uh, I, yeah, I tried to do that a little bit in parallel. But then in two thousand nine, uh, also with uh, you know, family starting to emerge. Uh, I, I thought I had to yeah, concentrate on on one of the things, and that was uh, investing and and being entrepreneurial. Um, so that was that was that. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. And uh, by the way, I also introduced her as one of the whatever Godfather, and you've been referred to as the digital marketing pope or legend, etc. Does that annoy you at all? Um, does that, that what do the, 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 does it annoy you being called the online marketing digital <laughs> marketing pope referred to in many you know interviews, podcasts, uh, articles, etc. I don't know. I don't know whether that's accurate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably better if, if other people say that. That uh, I would probably never say that myself. What's probably true is I always try to, and that's probably a little bit my uh, you know academic legacy, having worked quite seriously also as an academic for like four years. Um, you know, there you have the notion of of impact. Yeah, so does your thinking impact uh, basically others uh, that's like one of the biggest currency in in, in academia uh, and you can see that basically by people citing your papers and, and taking your ideas and, and and saying okay this is basically the theory of this person so 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 I, and my feeling was always okay um, it's 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 a it's, I always had the feeling that I had some sort of impact, at least on the, on the German-speaking scene, when it comes to things like attribution modeling and how to organize marketing teams and what's going to be the channel mix and these kind of and how to combine branding and and, and performance and 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 I always, you know, and where you come from an academic background or at least influenced by this academic thinking of having impact. 
then I think it's it's uh, it's a nice feeling actually if you, if you if you think that okay I'm willing to share my thoughts quite openly. I've always been very much um, um, a follower of kind of an open open source type men mentality. So I never try to like keep secrets uh, of, of the thinking of the approaches, but I always try to basically get them out. And, and um, so I think uh, if if you're willing to do that and if you want to have impact. In this kind of way, then I guess it's just uh, a normal thing. If people pick up these ideas, um, or at least partially, then uh, yeah, that uh, <laughs> this is also being recognized. So I think it's just a consequence of the same kind of thing. But um, I would never basically talk about this my, uh, myself. I guess. Uh, but but I think it's a it, it's yeah. a fair uh, attribution, and I don't even know who came up with this in the first place. However, it kind of sticked in many people's mind. Yeah. And actually, really talking about your uh, domain that you obviously master, be it marketing, digital, online, um, CRM, BI, which are, I think, or I would say, quite closely interlinked. When you look at the evolution um, from, let's say, one step back from a macro perspective, how would you summarize where do we come from and where are we now, where are we going to in terms of, you know, um, the channels, the, the technology, the KPI, skill set, et cetera, et cetera. Can you give us a quick ride yeah. through the past, let's say, 10 years or so? Sure, sure. I mean, uh, I think the biggest revolution in this whole thing was, was the introduction of AdWords in like 2002. Um, I think that was basically, and I think um, that was the, the biggest shift because AdWords has done a lot of things in um, uh, in the way marketing is, is looked at, I mean, the first thing is basically uh, one one really big uh, step forward, uh, and I think to the positive was uh, that we come from a media world 20, 30 years ago, you know, where you had very few players um, that would give away inventory, and you had a few agencies controlling access to that inventory for their clients. Yeah, I mean, that was basically the TV and print dominated world. And Google AdWords has basically given access to anybody with a credit card, uh, access to a worldwide uh, inventory uh, and, and a, a worldwide user base based on their search behavior. And uh, that was really a big revolution. Um, and I think the second thing that they introduced was there's no more fixed uh, kind of price in this whole um, media scene, but uh, people bid on um, um, you know, inventory and uh, certain placements or certain keywords, uh, certain search terms um, have um, a certain price per um, uh, per appearance. And I think uh, uh, combined with a combination um, of not only having an auction mechanism uh, that's responsible for the bid, but also that advertisers don't pay for the view per se anymore, but but pay for clicks. Yeah? And uh, and I think if you take these things together i think they that's that shows what what the impact is of um, of Google AdWords, and if you look now at, the, uh, at people like Facebook or Snapchat, or if Pinterest introduces an advertising system, or Outbrain or Tabula, um, everything works according to this logic. So um, you have a lot of bidders around the world; anybody can access it. Yeah, so there's no more big advantages for larger advertisers 
or, or agencies on, in terms of the pricing. Yeah, so the, the Google pays and, and also Facebook pay uh, a lot less kickbacks to to agencies, with, which give them an advantage. I mean, there are still kickbacks uh, involved for certain products, but I think overall um, the, the advantages of, of larger media buyers um, are, are now much smaller, at least uh, when it comes to price. So, and I think that has done done a lot. And and what you also see, and I think that's a, a big macro trend. I mean, online or digital used to be a niche, yeah, with uh, just a lot of the user behavior still happening offline. And, and, and if you look at the last 15, 20 years, I mean, now the majority, by far the majority of the uh, user behavior um, or media consumption happens in, in digital spheres. Yeah, and it happens in, in digitalized kind of formats. Um, so it has moved away from a, from a niche um, to something that's that's omnipresent and and I think like the rules that have been established by Edwards and yes they have become more sophisticated but the rules of the game that have been established by Edwards uh, in the niche in 2002 for following um, are now more and more becoming the rules of the overall media game yeah so with online not being the niche anymore but actually being the the dominating uh, set of uh, in, in media um, I think uh, that's that's why. I, I'm also a little reluctant to call it online marketing or, or digital marketing, but but for me it's more or less like marketing per se. Yeah, because if you if you look, uh, which are the only kind of channels or the only kind of uh, media categories that happen uh, still under under different rules, it's it's print. Yeah, um, so that and, and probably radio, but even in radio you have more and more programmatic uh, kind of tendencies so like the auction mechanism and bidding uh, happening and also tv uh, i think uh, if, if you see what all media channels are working or, or all tv channels or tv companies are working on is kind of getting their kind of inventory and getting their kind of advertising uh, programs uh, shifted to a Google-like or an AdWords-like infrastructure, yeah. So, and, and, uh, and technically, that's that's not far away. And, and according to the statistics you see in the U.S., um, a lot of the inventory, uh, some even say the majority of the inventory, uh, also in TV, is is basically um, auctioned off in a in a programmatic-like way, yeah. So, um, and and that is uh, and print is is losing share market share, yeah. So it's becoming less and less uh, relevant. Um, so you can definitely say that in 2019, the rules that Edwards established uh, are probably now uh, the, the dominant rules of the media game. Uh, and uh, there are some players that uh, that try to uh, obviously uh, slow that, that development down. Yeah, but um, um, but I think the forces are, are pretty clear uh, moving mm-hmm. in this direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and wouldn't you say that probably with the advent of Google AdWords, which is now, what, 17, uh, 15, 16 years ago, the um, overall tendency towards a more quantitative skill set became very relevant. And then the question is, you know, you just mentioned TV and other formats where the performance aspect is not so, let's say, easy or clear. Um, How do you look on that? Or what's your view on these rather branding-oriented channels where you don't have a um, typical, you know, conversion that you can measure or any sort of uh, performance or success metrics? Yeah, um, um, I think it's it's probably twofold. It's like on the one hand, you're you're right. It's uh, it's probably you know being able to see the effects or the direct effects of what you do in terms of, of 
your marketing activities and see kind of a, an input-output relationship in terms of a performance type of marketeer setting. That, that's definitely more, more prevalent now than, than it used to be. Yeah? So that, that's right. And especially in, in, in AdWords, that's definitely the case. On the other hand, though, um, and I think that's uh, that's what I always see, like kind of a, as, a, as a renaissance of storytelling, and uh, with the arrival of of, of video and uh, the relevance of, of video content, especially on all social platforms, whether it's Instagram Stories or, or Facebook Stories or, or Snapchat, and and so so um, and YouTube. Um, so the, if you look at what content is consumed, it's it's really more and more video based, and video is growing the strongest, and that brings back kind of the storytelling creative element into this whole performance marketing game. Yeah, and and I always was convicted that the strict separation um, or this divide between performance and and branding type advertising is not the right kind of way of looking at this whole thing. I, I always try to look at it not as as two distinct areas but as actually different focus areas between uh, but in the same con- customer funnel yeah so for me the the more branding focused um, advertising um, have always been like upper funnel activities or activities focused on the upper funnel, whereas, you know, AdWords or or retargeting and things like that uh, have been targeting the lower funnel, but it's the same funnel. Yeah. But because essentially you're you're looking, uh, you're looking at, at the same kind of users or the same kind of consumers that have to be brought into the upper funnel and, and and then will be converted if they if they reach the lower funnel if you've done a good job on the product side and communication side but it's not two different activities it's actually it's actually uh, you know different focus uh, points in the, in the same user funnel yeah and, and i think that's uh, that's also how you have to have to view uh, i think performance advertising and, and brand advertising uh, so you need a certain a level of upper upper funnel activity in order to to build a, a large business yeah so um, because otherwise if you just take what's there uh, use performance focused uh, advertising that's focusing on lower funnel you you will never grow uh, really big yeah? and you can see that with all businesses that have been successful uh, on a large scale they've all been able to push people into the into the upper funnel, yeah, um, and um, in a, in a successful way. Um, I think the only thing one needs to see and one one needs to to understand um, this performance type thinking or this ROI focused thinking on the direct advertising effect can only be done easily or, or more or easier if you have uh, a direct to consumer business in in. A, Whatever regard, yeah. So if you are an FMCG uh, company that that still focuses on indirect distribution through some kind of retail uh, partner, um, obviously uh, getting the uh, real under in-depth understanding and a substantial understanding of how the user funnel looks like. Um, and not based on market research, but actually based on actual user behavior, is obviously a lot more difficult. Yeah, Be- so because you're losing why... one aspect of, of the chain as it's um, carried out by the retailer. Yeah, absolutely. And as and as long as you don't have user level conversion data, which by definition only happens if you are at least partially. Uh, the the point of conversion yeah, with with whatever you're offering. Um, uh, if you don't have this final conversion point, it just makes things a lot more difficult. Um, because if you just have a market research based understanding, the granularity 
of you know basically uh, the understanding of what has actually happening yeah um, is is not uh, is, is, it's impossible to to get that and I think it's um, and and I think there's certain limits to market research in this yeah I think everybody who's been involved in market research knows that or is aware that there's so many biases and, and it's you always get like an average kind of uh, look at what, what has been happening um, and, and and so it's it's obviously a lot better to look at actual behavior of users in a really realistic kind of uh, context or environment. Um, on the other hand, though, um, and that's the limits of uh, you know the online world. Uh, in the online world, you see a lot of things uh, happening, obviously, yeah, uh, but you often don't know why these things are happening. Yeah, so you can be you can uh, basically observe certain user behavior, but often you don't really know the reasons why people are behaving in a certain way. You just know that they are behaving in a certain way, and and, and that on the other hand, that's where market research can can help. Uh, but I think it's uh, that's why I'm arguing also if, also for other reasons that even if you still convince that an indirect distribution distribution strategy as a, as a company is okay for you and will be sustainable in the future, even then I would introduce at least partially also a direct uh, distribution just to improve your understanding how marketing and, and CRM um, actually works in a, in a direct fashion. And, and really view this as an investment because for many, I think, talking of FMCG and other industries, uh, it seems to be quite impossible to make that a profitable uh, business case. However, if you look mm -hmm. at it from mm -hmm. your angle um, as a learning experience, then it's quite uh, obvious more an investment or, or what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, why is it not a good business case uh, in, in many cases? Because, you know, the, the cost of distribution of low end um, pro of lower end price products, it doesn't make sense to you know incur the, the logistics costs and things like that. That that's that's true. But I think what you're missing, um, if you if you look at it this way, is that you take um, the given assortment or you you the, the the current assortment or the current product offering, you take that as a given. And I think that's that's a mistake as an FMCG. Um, if you just look at it this way, yeah, I think you have to look at it basically. Okay, if if my current product offering or my current assortment of, of products does not um, allow or enable or support um, a type of direct to consumer relationship then I probably need to think about how I can change the offering and complement it with services or whatever to make it viable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now I'm, I'm aware that that is not possible with all the products, you know, with like probably, uh, but, but, but still, I think if, uh, I think you need to think about um, how you can make it at least partially, you know, and I think Nespresso or people like that are, uh, or companies like that are a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that products where you formerly thought, okay, that's, that's not a direct to consumer product um, in terms of online viability. Uh, it's possible to do that. Yeah. Yeah? So it, obviously not in every case. Yeah. But it's, but and, and the other thing uh, I think that, that, um, you know, FMCGs need to think about is, um, why am I actually, or why are people actually buying my product? And I think how FMCG has worked in, in the past is, uh, you know, they've, they've been bought because 
they were in the shelf space. Yeah? So and the shelf space was limited. And if you're on the shelf space and you do certain media-based uh, communication, then people will buy you, yeah? regardless of your objective kind of superiority uh, or competitive edge vis-a-vis -vis other products, just because you were in the shelf space. And I think in a, in a, in a world of unlimited uh, availability in, in most product categories, I think that that is not enough anymore. I mean, you need to objectively think about why should people buy my product? And it's probably, and I, and I compare that, uh, my, my lens on this is often um, there's substance brands that people buy because of the substance of or the features or the superiority or the objective or, or um, superiority of a certain product service mix. And there's, and there's um, basically communication brands that that have that are not differentiated in any kind of way, but they have been communicated in a in a nice way uh, via traditional media, and then they are they are in the share space, and that's why people buy them. And I think the ability of communication-based brands to deliver decent margins and deliver decent growth in the next couple of years will will basically go down uh -huh. uh, because I think the the role of uh, you know objective through things like customer reviews um, through the direct exchange ability or possibilities via the internet will gain more and more in importance yeah and, and I think what people haven't realized to to the fullest extent or not uh, enough uh, especially of the producers uh, on, on the F that user reviews especially like Amazon reviews uh, to a certain degree, have taken the role of um, of brands, yeah, uh, of traditional brands, and uh, uh, that's how you can also explain phenomena like like Anchor. You know, we have a battery producer that's just on Amazon that does more than a billion in revenue, and the only thing that they do is selling on Amazon, and uh, they have not done a lot of uh, branding advertisement, but they've just done um, put out innovative products for a good uh, uh, you know for a decent price and the price quality uh, ratio has been has been good and, and people have uh, rated uh, the products according to this and that's how they've been able to achieve without any traditional communication or with very limited traditional communication have been able to uh, to generate a very uh, decent business within like five six years yeah so it's, can, uh, we, can we maybe uh, um, um, dig deeper into that as you and your portfolio and if, if time allows, we might also uh, speak a bit about sure. Project A Ventures. But in your portfolio, you do uh, support a few direct-to-consumer brands. And when you mm -hmm. uh, consult them or sit down with them as an operational VC, really from scratch, how would you set up the marketing awareness, performance, whatever online digital marketing you would call it? How do you set up um, for, for such, let's say, a vertically integrated direct-to-consumer mm -hmm. brand um, just talking of you, uh, what you just described in general, um, talking about it uh, more concrete in, in your daily operations. Yeah, I think the, the key thing there basically is, I mean, first of all, you need a, a differentiated product. Yeah, I think that's, uh, so you really need to think about, is the product that I'm putting out there, can I communicate a credible and authentic story to users? that are relevant to the users and that will differentiate them in uh, all the product in a sufficient way. To take an example, that's, that's if I may interrupt, um, for example, Horizon Studios, I think is within your yeah. portfolio. It's a suitcase or a luggage uh, brand, but it's somewhat mm. different from Samsonite Remova and exactly. the others because it does have, you, you know better, but uh, I think a battery yeah. or a charger. Some, 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 uh, some, 
Exactly. They were like the first ones to introduce kind of smartness to, to luggage. Yeah? So it has a GPS sensor, it has a smart charger. Yeah. Uh, internally, it's also quite cool when it comes like, to functionality. Um, um, so, so, you know, it's, uh, they have been the first ones to introduce a proper laptop kind of uh, thing in the trolley and these kind of, these kind of things. So it's, it's smart in a technical sense. Uh, um, it's, it's direct to consumer. Yeah? So, so you, you save the retail margin. So it's a very decent product at a, at a fair price, especially if you compare to, to remobiles. So, so that and, and and I think they've been quite good at, at delivering kind of a, a decent value there. Yeah. So, in a, a similar example, that's from an angel investor, this company called Lilydo. Yeah. So they've been um, introducing uh, diapers, you know, at a price point north of um, Pampas, um, and they also have um, like an objective um, differentiation to a Pampas that resonates with at least part of the target group. Yeah, so it's, it's organic, no, as little plastic as possible. They don't smell, so it's, it's, yeah. it's it, and, and, and so it's probably not for everyone, yeah, but it, there's enough people that say, okay, for me, that differentiates this product to existing competitors in a, in a meaningful enough way that I'm willing to, to buy it. And then the second thing is, um, I would not, we would not enter um, uh, or we recommend at least to, to the startups that we invested um, uh, to somehow design a product portfolio that allows sufficient repeat purchases. Yeah? So um, if, if you have a single purchase product, it can be okay if it's really expensive and really complex. But if you look at most vertically integrated brands that really allow uh, for bigger scaling, um, they all, um, at least I'm, I'm not aware of any, any, you know, product where it really say they've been able to grow the business in a, with a good, decent capital efficiency is a product inventory or assortment where there's a natural repeat purchase rate built in. Yeah. I so mean, for you have to, yeah, right, yeah. right. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and for uh, then for some, uh, uh, nutrition supplement brands it's it's quite obvious yeah for horizon that's a little trickier mm. yeah so that's why you need to introduce you know more type of different types of trolleys that's why they introduced uh, um, um, backpacks accessories etc yeah. Uh, yeah so so um, and that's purely for that reason yeah, that you basically say okay if you don't have two three four purchases per year per customer it probably it's not possible to go into a de, uh, kind of um, um, a decreasing um, marketing cost ratio, which which you have to. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's uh, our key learning in all B two C or direct to consumer businesses. Um, uh, you need to have enough repeat purchases simply because of the fact that those repeat purchases happen normally at lower marketing costs than the initial purchase. So if you have an increasing share of repeat purchases of your overall purchases, by definition, your marketing cost um, of total revenue will go down. Yeah. So and, and if you always have to buy new customers uh, and they transact only once, it's just a lot more difficult. And that's why why I think also if you look at what a Casper is trying to do, I mean, they go offline. to The mattress company, Casper, yeah, from the US. The mat uh, the mat uh, and, and they also try to introduce accessories, yeah, so to, to make people purchase more. And, and, and I think in a mattress category, 
that's a lot more difficult than it is, uh, you know, for a nutrition supplement mm. company or Lily. Yeah? So let's take those. Uh, I'm not. Yeah. yeah, let's take those examples. So um, understood that uh, you're looking for a product that's somehow differentiated to the current incumbents. Then uh, number two, it should be some sort of a repetitive uh, product that people would buy not only once. And then if you set yeah. up. And, yeah. and, and, and sufficient, probably also one thing is really key, a sufficient shopping basket, realistically, Clear. to support logi to, to support logistics costs. So yeah, gums would be a bit challenging, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, so, so then in the next step, if you set that up or you support and consult your portfolio companies, mm -hmm. let's take just really concrete an example. You have 100 budget of a, some sort of you know budget currency, whatever, 100. And how do you then... Mm -hmm. Um, separate or allocate that budget into which you know activity or channel in terms of um, mm -hmm. setting this up and, and get this going. Yeah, um, um, I mean, uh, it, it depends a little bit, but I'm what I would always start with. I would try to do some some search, some adverts. Yeah, but that's all always tends to be difficult, yeah, especially if you have a premium price product. Um, because if you have search terms like, for example, diaper, yeah, the chance that as a lily do you'll be able to convert uh, or uh, in a sensible kind of way people that have searched for diaper um, to a degree that you're able to bid rationally uh, so that you are placed number one or two or three in, in, in AdWords um, is, is not very likely, especially if you have a premium product. Yeah? What tends to be the case is if you have search terms, there's obviously the audience behind this is an average of the population. And the average of the population is not going to buy. So it's probably only the top 20% in terms of income that are potentially Lily do buyers. Yeah? So you, I would still try to do some search, but I think uh, what, what you need to do in all digitally uh, or vertically integrated brands is you need to be able to convert people uh, on, on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, um, and then obviously you do some retargeting to convert people, but, um, but that's not a real marketing channel in the sense of getting new customers in. So it's really about, it's really about being able to, to get uh, um, Facebook and, and Instagram and pro probably GDN, so Google uh, Display Network, uh, get that going to a large enough degree that you're actually able to scale. Yeah? So and that would if, build if awareness, have, correct? Uh, would that be precise? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah but that, that, that's for me kind of a mixture. Yeah, upper But what funnel, I would not yeah. do, is, uh, that's a little bit upper funnel, but that's also obviously... Uh, that also has like strong performance elements. Yeah, but it, I would always start with like Facebook, Instagram, GDN, because if you are not able to spend a few thousand euros on that, yeah, um, uh, if you do a video advertising or, or something, there's a clear indication that something is not right uh, yet in your messaging, product, service offering kind of mix. That allows you to scale further, yeah. So, so, and I think that's a big mistake that often the FMCGs do. Yeah, if they launch a new product, they have a launch campaign, 10 million euros, and they put it out, and they don't know yet whether the the combination of messaging, packaging, uh, product features, communication, etc., is, is is already that, uh, whether it resonates enough to to afford uh, uh, or to support Clear. a sustainable business. Yeah. And that's why I would always start with like these biddable mechanisms first yeah, and then uh, try to scale that. And if, if you see that it works, if you're able to spend like 50, 60,000 euros sensibly on Facebook, 
then you might start thinking or on uh, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Then you might start thinking about you know doing a larger branding type campaign, yeah, um, or not branding in the traditional sense, but more like an upper funnel based campaign where you do like some YouTube stuff, or you you go more aggressive on Facebook doing audience targeting, and you might even do TV. Yeah, uh, so um, if if you if you really found the messaging. And you say, okay, I'm really able to convert uh, first purchase sales into into repeat purchases uh, to a large enough degree. Then I would start doing more upper funnel activity yeah, because the chances that that you will actually convert people that you push into the upper funnel in an ROI positive way, if if basically the whole kind of experience, uh, including things like CRM, yeah, including basically getting people into the repeat purchase behavior. If all of that isn't working um, at a little more lower funnel activity, uh, like like Facebook, uh, similar audiences or, or things like that, then it often doesn't make sense to move too strongly in the upper funnel. So I would always start with the lower funnel first and then try to gradually move up into the upper funnel. Um, and that's that's basically my recommendation. And then you go, you grow as broad uh, uh, as as you can go, yeah. I mean that's uh, that has been the the characteristic of all businesses that have really been going through the roof, like a Zalando. Or you see it also now with an About You. Why are they growing so strongly? Because uh, they are able mm, to convert people on an ROI positive basis. Uh, also because of the high repeat purchasing frequency so the lifetime value is quite high which again allows you to bid more and then then you kind of uh, are able to to grow uh, your, your upper funnel marketing activity to a level that really gives you this kind of growth engine that you that you see in in these hyper growth type type companies yeah and uh, and i think that's that's something that you uh, that you have to monitor really closely and, and mirror uh, really closely and analyze and then and, and, but but that needs to be the ultimate goal yeah so yeah and, and that's a good point Florian because um it, it kind of sounds very straightforward when we discuss mm -hmm. it but I think whoever did that in reality knows that you know uh, the actual doing of it can be somewhat tricky as you said monitoring analyzing getting all the data uh, would you agree and then how does um, is that something that Project A brings into the game um, in terms of the infrastructure, the knowledge, the, the, the you know? Just it's not. Yeah, I mean that's that, that's exactly that. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, because moving moving to the upper funnel, yeah, will only work, and that is I think a key thing to understand. If you have a good BI infrastructure in place, yeah. So what what does it mean? Something that can do attribution. You have a clear understanding and some kind of modeling of indirect advertising effects, yeah, because you will never be able to if you if you just look at the post last click kind of activity um, on Facebook or, or on Instagram, you'll probably not be able uh, to achieve the same kind of ROI level as you as you as you are on retargeting or as you are on search or all kind of lower level uh, lower funnel activity. And I think uh, so. You need. A decent BI infrastructure and also the anal uh, analytical skills in in your company to be able to to do this. Yeah. So and all these things need to fall into place uh, basically at the same time. Yeah. So you need the marketing CRM execution skill. Uh, you need you need a very good product that's objectively differentiated and, and or product mix product service mix that's objectively differentiated. And at the same time, um, at the same time, you need the kind of BI infrastructure on the uh, on the actual hardcore data side and on the analytical side 
that's able to feed back the knowledge into uh, the other two areas. Uh, that all needs to happen at the same time. And you need to be able to and willing to uh, pre-finance the learning that, that you need to need to do. Yeah? Because, and I often, I often see that you, you see people that say, ah, I tried, uh, I tried Facebook uh, or I tried Instagram upper funnel geared activity and I spent 5,000 euros and it has been a disaster. Um, and um, and uh, I stopped it. Yeah. So and and w what my learning is is upper funnel activity to get that going uh, in a sensible way requires the willingness to invest six digit amounts in media and and uh, also um, into into kind of the people analyzing it and and, uh, and build, building a deep understanding of it. Yeah. So so you're easily the uh, mix. Uh, uh, like mid-level six-digit amount of money, you need to need to be willing to invest in just this to potentially get get something going. Um, and um, and if you stop too early uh, and, and basically give up, uh, then you'll not be able to to get this going in a in a proper way. And 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 obviously you can also fail, yeah, because I mean there's obviously some products, no matter what you do. Mm, on the marketing communication side and CRM side and BI side, they simply don't provide uh, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, scaling in an, in an upper funnel. Um, and, and what also a lot of people are missing, and I think that is, is something you need to invest as well, is, is the relevance of the creation uh, side in the upper funnel. Yeah? And I think that's also something you need to understand. If you're just in a search arena, uh, if you're just doing AdWords, um, the variance of performance that you will see or the variance of, of user behavior is also there, but it's the variance is much smaller than, than you'll see in upper funnel activity. So the, um, the difference between the performance in decent or very good upper funnel activity and not so great upper funnel activity is just huge compared to uh, not as good AdWords and, and very good AdWords type of um, uh, activity. Yeah? So, and I think that is the key to, to understand. So the volatility is, of yeah. user behavior is, is much higher. And is yeah. that something you would say is rather a quantitative or rather a creative qualitative uh, angle when talking about the yeah. creation you said? And that's a difficult thing. Yeah, it's, it's both. Because what you need to be willing to do as somebody that does storytelling or creation is appreciate the guidance that data can give you also as a creative person yeah, in guiding your creative activity. And that is something uh, what you unfortunately see in a lot of people. They're either very strong on the quantitative side or they're very strong on the creative side. People that are willing, that are very strong on the creative side and that are willing to be informed by data uh, and that they actually see it as a chance, that that's not the prevalent mindset, unfortunately. Is it changing, so, you think? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and I hope so. And it has to, yeah? Because, I mean, if you see what this is doing, I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah? It's like um, they, they, have, they have this creative process, and I think everybody would argue yeah, that what Netflix is doing, also Amazon Originals are doing, is excellent work. Yeah. So in so, terms of um, content creation, you mean really the, the series, the shows, the yeah. Exactly. In terms of content creation, which is much more complex, obviously, than, than if you're talking about advertising. But I think the principle is 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 the same. Yeah. Um, they have it all guided by looking at user behavior, by seeing 
which uh, basically sequence within the new Amazon original series is actually pulling people off, which makes them come back. Yeah, so so I think um, the Netflix and, and and Amazon and Amazon in terms of their their content creation piece. Um, they are really the masters or are in the process of becoming the masters of having a highly creative process and, and have data inform that. Yeah? And, and I think the same kind of uh, thinking or the same kind of approach needs to be prevalent also in, in, in communication and needs to be prevalent in creative agencies. Yeah? Um, and, and I think that, that that's the type of mindset that you need but uh, if you if you come from a from a traditional creative world, that's not per se uh, the the thinking that that you have. Yeah, they rather see or they often see um, data um, as a limiting factor for your creativity uh, and not as a guiding or informing factor of your creativity. And I think that that needs to change and, and it will, and I'm sure that it will change Yeah, because if you look at the, the new creators yeah, and like the, the, the large influencers on Instagram and which have like six, seven million followers, they look at that data all the time and they try to understand, okay, if I hold the camera this way, well, what does it mean? How do I need to start um, the, the, the story uh, to have less people drop off? And, and so and that's also because Facebook and also Google with, with YouTube are providing so much data to creators uh, and put them in the hands uh, of, of, um, of them. And so you don't need to rely on some kind of market research, ex post market research anymore, but you actually see and, and, and what, what, how people are behaving. So I think a new generation of creators um, that, that has become large on Facebook or that has become large on, on Instagram or on Snapchat um, or on YouTube, they, they have this thinking much more uh, basically aligned with, with their creativity. Um, and I think that's that's the type of mindset that, that you need. T yeah. Talking of which, and really getting to know you as a person better, when you, let's say, interview people, and we just talked about the skill sets that are necessary in today's and tomorrow's world that we all um, act in, how do you identify the potentials that or the, the talents that you look for? What's kind of, do you have any interview hack or favorite question that you use in your <laughs> interviews? Um, no, actually, not, not, not really. I think the, the big step that you need to do interviewing people is you have to, you know, and I think that's often the, pro, the, the problem in, in existing HR processes, um, and especially in larger corporates. People overvalue experience versus potential a lot yeah I and think how do you identify that you, potential yeah i i completely yeah, agree i completely agree but that's the first step that you need to take yeah i mean first of all you need to understand okay i need to look for potential right. not so much for yeah so i think and that that's often what and then the question is exactly well what is what is into and i think you can see um uh, and then I, the second thing is probably okay i'm not looking for a formal qualification that much anymore. So for me, it's more about what have people done in the past um, that you know will tell you uh, that that they might be able and willing to to deal with this. And and what I actually I look at two things. One is quite easy. Yeah. Um, one is basically stamina and and uh, the the ability to stick onto things. And mm -hmm. whether people have done a certain sport, have played a certain instrument, or have done something in a serious way. That's something that I like a lot, yeah, especially in entrepreneurs. I mean, that's not, not necessary for everybody, but I think the ability to do something intensively uh, and with all passion 
um, and it, with endurance. That is, I think, a key skill when it comes to, okay, now Instagram is on the scene or now TikTok is on the scene and now I really want to get into it and understand it. And I think most people that are successful in the digital world because there's not nobody out there that can give you that knowledge just you know, in a really explicit form. So you need people that are able to work in a way that they build their own implicit knowledge, try out things. So the, the factor of endurance and being willing to, to look at things in detail and, and stick onto it, that's like the key, 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 key okay. skill uh, per se. And that's quite easy yeah, because that right. I think you can see in the past. So that's thing number one I would look at because if you don't have anybody, if, if people haven't done this or haven't demonstrated this, um, uh, and they always switch every time. They've done nothing really serious. That that's uh, that that will be difficult for them anyway, regardless of their cognitive or whatever ability. And then um, I try to look uh, at, at things uh, that they've done in in the past that will show you okay. Will they have some kind of analytical ability, or will they likely have some kind of um, access? to technical kind of stuff, yeah? Because if you want to have somebody in BI or if you want to have somebody in data-related uh, tasks, they need to be able to deal with this uh, kind of analytical side of things. And does, does data really speak to them? And, um, and, if you, and I just try to talk to people, okay, what have you done in the past that can show me this, and and that can be uh, they've written, they've done a blog, or they've been, in, uh, or they've done like a smaller uh, arbitrage project in the past where they you know like got traffic in and and uh, for something and they converted by affiliate investments, or they've they've been selling some things on on Amazon. Yeah, um, uh, just that, these are all indications. Yeah, that they are Probably yeah. going to be people. So, but it's it's not a formal qualification. Small things they've done and they've 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 been interested in. Um, but in in fact, I think it's uh, one has to be very honest before you actually work with people and see people working with you on the concrete tasks. It's it's very hard to to really understand whether they will have this this kind of impact. So I think the biggest the, the biggest step for me is just moving away a little bit from formal qualifications and moving a little bit away from, you know, trying to look for experiences that indicate, but really trying to look at the person per se. And is it an analytical person? Is it, does the person have access to, to, to technical things? Um, and, and uh, is that person yeah, willing and, and to, to, to show us high level of endurance um, and, and, and energy and passion and, and the rest will follow? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm and, and sure. really yeah. looking back, I mean, I think, what, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been probably a, a good prerequisite to have worked at either a big uh, consultancy or as an iBanker. When you look at all the, you know, Berlin startup internet, uh, also rocket internet uh, people there. So, mm -hmm. right, that, that's kind of a, I would say, typical career path. Would you think that yeah. changed or... Is that I, I think that changed change a little bit, um, at least, yeah. So because, um, uh, I mean, it's still nice if you've been at McKinsey for three years, you're still a very smart person, yeah. So that, that is uh, very likely to be the case. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been there for three years. Um, but I think what has definitely changed is uh, there's more and more models, especially also if you want to be successful coming out of Germany uh, or Europe, um, you need to think more in terms of B2B. You need to think more in terms of tech. Yeah? So I think the, the, the requirements in terms of uh, 
a better understanding of technology, a better understanding of products um, as key success factors for, for a business have definitely become more really key thing. Yeah? And that's where these people that we just talked about are often very strong. But I think if you don't have at least I'm now talking just about like the founders that we that we look for. Our feeling is that the role of business models that require that have more technical depth and require more tech and that will we require more of a technical differentiation uh, that just requires a different set of people in terms of more technical, more product focused um, and not so much execution focused. And um, and I think in, in that sense, it has changed. That does not mean that. You know the McKinsey people don't don't play a role anymore. That that's that's not the, that's not the case because also in a tech-driven product-based business, there there are still roles for for people like that. But I think the relative importance of them uh, vis-a-vis you know the more technical, the more product-oriented people and people that have a good feel for UI UX and 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 you know that has definitely that has shifted uh, away uh, a little bit. Uh, so the, the relevance uh, has gone down. So, so Florian, you have so much on your plate, right? You're a founding partner of Project A. You appear in a lot of, you know, podcasts. You're a very um, public figure as well. And just to understand, how do you do all this, you know, with just the 24 hours that you have and all of us only have, uh, what does a day look like in Florian's life? What time do you get up? Do you have any morning routines? How do you get through all this? Uh, uh, the, the 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 yeah the thing is my my routine first of all it's um, a lot of focus yeah? so in a sense um, I'm I'm um, so I just concentrate on very few things yeah? and that's basically project A or the venture activity that we do and my family yeah so apart from that I don't do a lot of things and if you have four children which which I have uh, which are also still very small I think that's um, otherwise impossible to do that yeah so. Um, and and so, to many, that's so already too much, I would think, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I, I get up at 6.30 because kids, we need to leave by 8 o'clock to get kids to school. Um, and, and that's basically so I cannot read things or do yoga because if you have a three-and-a-half-year-old at home, <laughs> 6.30... That's I know what you mean, Julian. <laughs> I have the same experience at home, yeah. Okay. You're just, you're just happy if you get out of the door by 8 o'clock. Yeah? So that, that's that. That's that, um, and um, and uh, I think a big kind of scalability hack for me is I have developed a lot of trust in others. Yeah? So I've been I've I've kind of for me decided that um, we have excellent people here in many regards at Project A, and I'm completely fine with them taking decisions. Um, I, I I have a very low I've developed a very low sense of control over others here at, at, at Project A. And even if things go wrong in a certain way, uh, that, that that's completely okay because it's also part of the learning experience. So I've, I've no problem whatsoever in delegating things uh, that applies for, and I also in the same, I, I, so I, I trust in people um, unless they really proactively show me that they don't deserve that trust. Yeah, and I try to give people the feeling that it's okay to make mistakes as long as you just make them, you know, only once or twice. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest time saver. Yeah, so I talk a lot to people, obviously, and I have like seven direct reports here at Project A that I, that I talk to on a regular basis. But I, I hope at least that all of these guys have a lot of freedom to do 
whatever they think is right. And I try to be more like a mentor or consultant if they need me, yeah, or if they think I can uh, I can add something to their decision making process. But I, I try to give them the feeling that you don't need to involve me in if you're sure uh, that you're doing the right kind of thing. And I think that's that's probably the biggest the biggest step um, for me. But I also have to say that's probably much easier for somebody like me than it is like if you're working at a real company. I'm not saying that Project A is not a real company, but um, I mean, obviously, the, the actual execution, I mean, we support in it, but the actual execution happens in the businesses we invest in. Yeah? So for me, it's much easier, to, well, to be honest, to, to step back. Yeah? Um, and, but I also realized for me, that's kind of, if I look at my personality, uh, I think that's just who I am. I think I'm a better consultant, a better mentor to people, to entrepreneurs, than I am the hardcore executor that goes for the last bit in detail. And and, and, and I think realizing that for me has been a key thing. Yeah? And I think everybody needs to realize that for themselves. But I think for me, uh, it has been completely okay to, to realize, okay, there's, there's, there's probably other people that are better at executing, that are the better entrepreneurs, so to speak. But I'm probably quite good at, at doing this, uh, you know, helping others to find their path and find good conceptual solutions and approaches and, and being a good sparing partner. And I think that can also be a valuable role. So for me, that has been... Uh, has and been I think key. anyone that, no. you would ask and talk to, actually, uh, I have this impression, would confirm that Florian Heinemann is such a person, really happy to share. And, and talking, you just said mentor. Did you actually have a mentor or do you have a mentor yourself? Uh, I don't really have a mentor in a, in a, in a broad sense, yeah, but I'm, I'm very people-centric. So what do I mean by that? I, I draw a lot of, like I would say, inspiration and ideas from what other people do and, and talk. It's not one person per se, yeah, but it's, it's a variety of people in different situations. So I'm quite open to that. So I, I'm not basically saying, okay, this is my guru, X, Y, Z, and I'm following what, what that person thinks. It's more, if I have the feeling that some person has something smart to say and some smart ideas in a certain area that I'm interested in, I'm listening to it and trying to draw my own conclusions from it. So I'm, I'm, I'm highly, uh, you know, highly receptive to the signals that I'm receiving from others, and that's probably also a, um, um, a recommendation. Um, all, only because you you think you are successful, that does not mean that you, you should be. I mean, I'm also sending quite a lot of messages. I'm, I'm aware of that and sending quite a lot of content. Uh, but I'm I'm also very receptive uh, to what I what I see, and also regardless of you know hierarchy levels or whatever. So I really so I wouldn't say I'm I have like one one mentor, but I you, for most situations I have a mentor like person probably in most cases without that person knowing <laughs> that he or she is this, uh, where, where I'm drawing basically my, my certainty from to take a certain decision. Yeah, so it's, um, uh, it's probably more that than like having uh, the one person that influences me. Yeah. Very, very interesting, Flo. And, and I think we could talk for hours and I hope there's another occasion where we might be on recording or not, but I guess you have to run. And um, that gave us a very interesting insight, a very honest insight into how you think also in terms of marketing, uh, what Project A does and of course, who Flo and Heinemann himself. Thanks for having me. And